presence of God. Amen. So we're so glad to have you here this morning. And uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. We're in a series called Getting Clear with Christ, which means I want to see Him clearly, uh, and I want to see myself more clearly in in 2020. uh, We're praying for clear vision uh, on who He is and who we are. And each week we're talking about something, how we can see Him or know Him more. And today I want to talk to you about declaring Him, declaring Him. But uh, Father, we just take this moment, settle our hearts, settle our minds to receive from Your Word today. Lord, let us examine ourselves truly and rightly uh, according to Your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. E pluribus unum, it's a big word, and you probably see it on your money. Uh, You'll see it on the seal of the president, the vice president, the U.S. Congress, uh, the Supreme Court. But what does it mean? And uh, I don't know how many of you remember history class or or American civics, but it means out of many, one. How many people knew that? Out of many? Okay, we're going to all go back to school. Where's my teachers? All right. Out of many, one. Uh, it originates from that time where they had the 13 original U.S. colonies and they formed one uh, government. And that pluribus part, uh, we talk about uh, plural, uh, pluralistic democracies, meaning uh, it has one, more than one center of power. You know this. We have an pre- executive branch, uh, a judicial branch, and a legislative branch, okay? And we're a pluralistic Democracy, And we don't really talk about that, or you hear that word very much, but in the, uh, that was our country's motto for up until about the 1950s, and then we had the saying, in God we trust, come in. But about the same time that in God we trust came in as our national motto, that word pluralism began to skyrocket. I actually looked it up, how frequently that word pluralism began to be used uh, in our country, and it increased ever since, and it's actually very popular today. And I want to talk to you just briefly about this as we get into the Word, because this is very extremely important, especially for our young people. Uh, pluralism used to mean, before the 1950s, holding two offices uh, at a time. But this word, uh, whether you realize it or not, in mainstream media, uh, has begun to take a very dangerous tone especially for you and me as the church, and here's why. Uh, In society, the word pluralism, it means having a diverse set of cultures or social groups uh, keep their distinction in the midst of a broader whole. It means uh, having that diversity. It means that minorities can remain different, but they should be together. And in Harvard put out a study uh, a couple years ago, uh, actually in 2006, it said that pluralism is this. It is the energetic, the energetic engagement with diversity. It's not just tolerance, but it's actively seeking to understand people across the lines that are different. It means not leaving your identity behind, but holding your difference in relationship to one another. It's based on a dialogue of a common understanding of all of our differences. It means being at the table with other people even if you don't agree. Have you heard this philosophy very common today? Being at the table, we can all maybe believe differently, but we can all at least agree to get along. How many people understand that's very popular today? All right. 
Uh, that's called pluralism, and it sounds very peaceful. It sounds like, man, this is a great utopia. We're a country of immigrants. We're a country that we can all agree to disagree and get along. And it has this great idea behind it. And it's actually very rooted in the American thing, the American ideal. But here's where we are at today in our country and in society in the modern world, where I believe this is a very dangerous thing uh, Christians need to be aware of. Here is why pluralism today has taken on a new meaning. In logic, here's what pluralism means in our universities. It means there is no one specific right way of logic, but there are many correct views of logic. In philosophy, it means that there is more than one ultimate principle. It means there can be two or more realities that can be true. It means there are more than one ways to truth. And in religion today, this is a new deceptive philosophy. Well, it's really not new. It's the belief that many religions can have many truths. And what is true for you may not be true for me. How many people have heard that before? What is true for you may not be true for me. That is called pluralism in the modern day. Uh, and I believe this is a Trojan horse because it has led many things into our country. It's called moral relativism. Uh, it is called uh, that tolerance or diversity and all these things that are now changing in definition. It means that what is morally right in the eye of the beholder uh, is right for them. And it's even a movement in the American church to bring all denominations, all religions together into one universal religion uh, that all pathways lead to God. Uh, this is taking over your, our universities. It was there when I was in the university uh, back from 2003 to 2007. Uh, it was, it's there in the mainstream media today. It's there in many places, in many denominations and universal uh, denominations, even eroding its way into some of our more traditional and mainstream denominations uh, today in America, that what was once true may not always be true. And what is true for you may not be true for me, but at least we can all come to the table and accept all the truths as the one supreme truth, that there is a God. The problem with you and I and Bible-believing Christians today in a pluralistic country and society is that Jesus is divisive. He said he is the only way to God, he's the only truth, and he's the only life. Somebody say Amen. There is no one truth other than Jesus Christ. There's no any other way to God but Jesus Christ, and he is the only way. Amen. So how do you maintain your distinction as a Christian in the modern day? That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. In an increasingly uniform society where everyone pretends to be tolerant and pretends to be diverse, but yet you all must agree that every way is a right way, how do you and I stand apart, distinct as Christians? Because this same thing happened to the early church. And what we need to do is go back in time and learn what they did and how we should do it today. Is there any friction to our faith? And the thing I want you to take home today is this one line is dead Christians are discreet in their declaration. Dead Christians are discreet in their declaration. So let's look in Revelation chapter 3. I want to talk to you about the church in Sardis, okay? The apostle John is writing from Jesus Christ. If Jesus has come and revealed himself, he's writing to all the churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and he comes to the church of Sardis. And here's what he says. He says, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write this. 
He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars say this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Somebody say dead. You're alive, but you're dead. He says, wake up and strengthen the things that remain which are about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So remember. Somebody say remember. There's some key words here we're going to talk about. Remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief and you'll know and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not yet soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. I'll not erase his name from the book of life and I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me tell you about Sardis. Sardis was the capital of Lydia, and Sardis was found by Alexander the Great. It was a military uh, outpost. In fact, they had a, a, what was said to be an impregnable, uh, impregnable fortress, a, something you could not even get into. And in that place, there was a trade union there for wool garments, okay? It was very, a big thing for them. Their trade was in wool garments, and they served uh, the gods. And any, uh, as we've talked before, in any Roman city, it was this way. You could believe in anything you wanted to believe so long as you did not upset the status quo. If you wanted to be in the trade union for wool, you had to come into the marketplace, say that the emperor was lord, and bow down to the goddess of that trade union or the god of that trade union. And in this place, it was the, the god Artemis, who was the god of the hunt and the moon and, and purity and childbirth. And this city, it was formerly this big thriving city, but had begun to die. And Jesus begins to play on these words and begin to use things that would relate to them. And so here's one unique thing as you study it out that happened in Sardis. In that place, while all over the Roman world this was the case, in this place you can go back and dig up and and see the artifacts that the Jewish synagogue was right downtown next to the public bathhouse. Now, they had public baths and toilets and all that kind of stuff. They didn't wear a lot of clothes, okay, back in the day. So to have a Jewish place next to this pagan place was really unheard of. It was the largest Jewish synagogue outside of Israel. And in this place, we find, if you dig up and look at the synagogue and go there today, that there are Roman symbols inside the synagogue. In fact, the list of the Jewish people's names are written in the Roman language, Greek, and not in the Hebrew language of Israel. Uh, and they, they, they know this. As they've dug it up, they found that it looks to be that that synagogue became very tolerant of the pagan culture around them, so much so that Jewish people didn't seem to have a problem with their Roman neighbors, and their Roman neighbors didn't seem to have a problem with them because they were very inclusive. The same is also true as the Jews begin to give up their... Remember that story of the the three Hebrew children and the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that they really were standing apart from their culture? That was a thing for Jews. Well, this synagogue began to put Rome's eagles in their thing and change their names willingly. And they also found in the marketplace a symbol of a Christian who had an open uh, booth in the trade union. Now, that's important because in that day, Christians wouldn't openly be able to work in the marketplace. Why? Because to do so meant 
you had to be accepted by all and you had to accept all. And it meant that you had to bow down and say the emperor was Lord and also probably participate in some of this worship to the pagan God. So here's what we know. As Jesus begins to speak to this church in the ancient world, he's saying to you, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. You are dead in your distinction and in your declaration of what it really means to be the church. Let's look at this just real quick and go through this. They're dead in their distinction. They were in a pluralistic society. So first off, it says, he says, here's who I am. I am him who has the seven spirits and hold the seven stars. The seven spirits is from Isaiah of what Jesus had upon him. It simply means the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was a spirit of wisdom and counsel and all kinds of other things. And he goes in, uh, he says, I am the guy who has the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I am the one who has the anointing of the Messiah. And he says, I'm holding the seven stars. In Revelation, uh, the first couple chapters, it tells us what that means. It means that he is holding the authority of the churches. He's holding the pastors, the leaders of the churches in his hand. He says, I am, here's who I am. See me. I'm the guy who has the anointing and the authority over the church. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is the boss. Do you believe that? Jesus is the boss. I don't know about you. I know you might have voted me in and you let me run the church in a pretend manner, but I, don't, I want to tell you, Jesus is the boss, okay? He's the boss of our worship team, of our board members, of our deacons, of our elders. He's the boss. And he's the boss of every church around the world. I don't care how men set themselves up. He has the anointing from his father to lead the church, and he has the power in his right hand to uphold it. Amen? And so he says, I'm the guy that's in charge. I want you to see who I am because you may think you know how to run a church. You may think you know how to be a Christian. You may have interpreted my words a certain way, but I want to remind you who's the boss, all right? That's not a TV show that I'm talking about, all right? He's the boss, okay? And so he says, here's who I am. I'm more than qualified. And John uh, saw him in Revelation 1.18 as the living one. He says, but who was dead but is now alive forevermore and has the keys of death in Hades. There's not one pastor alive today that has the keys of death in Hades. There's not one denomination today that holds the power over life and death. Jesus is the one who earned the right to set the rules. And when you come up against someone today in your church or your denomination or in your secular world, wherever you are, and they have a problem with what the Bible says, here's what you want to tell them. Jesus is the boss. I didn't write this book. I don't come up with this stuff. He's the guy who earned the right to lead his church and give us his word because he's the only guy, so far as I know, that has come alive from the dead. Somebody say amen. So that's where he is. So let's all take pause, and I don't care who's in power in Congress or president or what the Democrat debate says. Jesus is alive and well. He's the boss, and he's in all power and authority. And so he says, I want you to see who I am. Because before you can see who you are, you got to look in the mirror and say, I don't think I measure up to this guy, all right? We may think we're in power. We may think we have good ideas. We may think we have great doctrine. But he's the only one who can say, I am the one who lives forever. Amen? So he says, see, my, see who I am. He says, now, I want to talk to you about you. This is the only, uh, this is the first time Jesus writes. He doesn't say anything good about this church, all right? So other churches, he kind of get that Mary Poppins uh, f- spoonful of sugar thing. This one, it's just all bad, okay? So watch this. He says, you are alive, but you're dead. What's a dying Christian? He says, you're a Christian in name only. You're dead in your distinction. 
You may look like the church, but you're not. You've forgotten, perhaps, or watered down the message. You've made the message something it is not. All right? He says you're asleep and you're weak. That means you're ignorant of his coming. You're not aware that he's coming back to judge the world. You've been overcome by worldly living. He goes on, he says, even the works I see you do are incomplete. And in fact, it means that your works do not measure up to the works of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because those are man's works. We can give all of our money to the poor and all that stuff. And Paul says, you can still be a clanging symbol, worthless, just a noise in the midst of the whole world, unless you have a love for God and a love for others. It's got to be birthed out of a Holy Spirit love. In fact, when Paul writes, writes that in 1 Corinthians 13, he puts it in the middle of the spiritual gift chapters, meaning it is a love that is sandwiched in the power of the Holy Spirit, that you cannot love your neighbor out of a want to of your flesh but it must be a want-to of the Holy Spirit inside of you. He says, your good works, as good as they could be, don't measure up because they're man's works. It's man's religion, man's concept, man's programs, man's Sunday school program. It's all man's worship. It's all man. It's incomplete. It's not birthed in the Spirit. He says, even so, you've forgotten. You've made my words twisted into something they are not. You don't remember what the message is really all about in America today, we have been taken over in the mainstream so many times by people who preach different passages or sections of the word, and they can make it a prosperity gospel this way. They can make it a grace overflow gospel this way. They can make it legalistic this way, and they can take it to whichever you find. You go through the radio, you can find hell brimstone, and you can find you the best person who ever lived, and that boy is missing out when he dumped you. Amen. Are we with me tonight this morning? You can make the gospel say whatever you want. He says, you've forgotten the real message of what this is all about. And he says, you have soiled garments. And all of this churchianity that you have, you've brushed up against worldly things, and it's made your righteousness, your victory, tainted. And people in that day would have understood this because their main market was garments, And they can't sell a soiled or dirty garment at their trade union, at their tent booths, uh, in the marketplace. He says, because you've compromised, it's caused you have no victory over sin in your life, nor will you have any victory over the real death that's going to take you over. In fact, the real curse or the problem here is that you have become discreet, in your declaration, you are no longer distinct among the world's religions. You no longer stand apart. You're just one of the crowd. And this is true today in the modern society, in the American church. Are we a people who have been dead in distinction, who have twisted the gospel to make it into something else, who have taken man's efforts and replaced them for spirit's efforts, or who have said, we make our own interpretation of the words of Christ? That's easy to do. Let me give you an example. Somebody tells you something about what the Bible says, and you can say, well, I don't really think that's what that means. Okay. Well, what do you think it means? Well, who am I to tell you or to decide what? Now, I know we have different denominations and interpretations. Trust me, I believe in those things. 
But I am not the boss of what the Bible says, and it can't be according to my feelings or a whim or a cultural new age or the way the society is going. Well, that's just not relevant in the modern day, Pastor Heath. Do you know, see, today this is how young kids act, and today this is how we have to have church, and today this is how we have to do things. That might have been fine back then, but what about today? You see how we begin to make the Bible say what we want it to say. Somebody say amen. I want to look at you. I want to know what you're talking. You know what I'm talking about, okay? All right, so he says, see yourself. How many churches fit into this mix today? How many Christians? He says, there's going to be a judgment or reward, and you should know this. He says, for those who've compromised and forgotten that I'm in charge of my church, he said, I want you to remember, if you think you're not making the rules, you're going to get caught off guard. He says, I'm going to come to you like a thief in the night, and here's why that would mean something to them. In this uh, defensible fortress that they have, and the one, the, the only two times that anybody ever broke through, one of the times I, I heard this story was kind of funny. There was a soldier on the wall, apparently, and as they had been invaded and they were holding them back, the enemy soldiers, this soldier on the wall had dropped his helmet over the side of the wall. And he didn't think anybody was looking, and he kind of quietly snuck down and went through a secret door in the wall, popped out got his helmet, and got back in and shut the secret door, went back up to his post. He didn't know that people were watching him through the bushes, or, and they saw where the secret door was. And that night, an elite team of soldiers came in like a thief and took the city. And Jesus is playing on their history there. He says, just like that, you think you are strong, you think you are defensible, you think you've got it going on, and you think your Christianity is right in line with me. But like a thief in the night, when you are unaware, I will come and bring judgment to you. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24? He says, be on the alert. You do not know the day the Lord's coming. Be sure of this. If the head of the house had not known at what time the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have not allowed the house to be broken in. But this reason, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. How many churches in the American church today are ready for Jesus to come back? How many people are ready for Jesus to come back? Somebody say amen. You're ready. Judgment's coming, says, but yet if you would stand fast on my words, he says, I'm going to give you two things. One, you're going to have a robe in white. Again, to go back to that woolen garment, he says, a white robe is what you would be given back in that day as if your team won the Olympic Games. All your teammates would be given a white robe. You know, we have our USA. They're always wearing like the jumper suits with the, the blue and red and white, right? We give them all that. That's what we give. And that day you'd get a white robe, meaning, man, my team won. How many people want to be on Jesus' team? He says, when you get to heaven, my team is the winning team. You all get white robes. We all get to wear that. You're going to get to stand up there, and it's going to be first place, second place, third place. It's just going to be first place. It's going to be Jesus, and everybody behind him is going to have his colors, his flag, and it's going to be Jesus wins. Amen? And so he says, that's what I'm going to give you. Not only that, I'm going to write your name in the Lamb's book of life, which is in Christ, and I'll, no one will ever blot it out, meaning your citizenship in heaven will last forever. See Christ and see yourself. Dead Christians are discreet in their declaration. What does it mean? Just real quick, I'm going to give you three things to take home today. What does it mean to be a distinctive Christian, to be a declaration uh, of your life? What does it mean to have a living a Christianity, one that is strong, that is awake, that is vibrant, that is expecting him to come back. And there are three things you can pull out from this passage. Three words, remember, repent, and be restored. The first one is remember. 
He says, remember, remember what is truth. Remember when Pilate was crucifying Jesus, what did he say? What is truth? And there was the truth standing right there in front of him, and he killed it. Uh, He says, what is truth? Remember what truth is. And here's the truth. John said it in chapter 8, verse 31. He says, if you continue in my word, then you truly are disciples of mine, and you will know. Everybody say no. Know the truth, and the truth will what? Make you free. And he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I want to tell you something today. Here's the truth. Jesus is the only revelation of God. It is not in Buddha or Hindu or Islam. It is not in Mormonism. It is not in Jehovah's Witness. It is not in anything that does not put Christ at the supremacy of the revelation of the almighty God. We should say amen to that. He is the true revelation. And only if you believe in him, you put all your works, you bet all your chips, you lay your life on him, you rest all of your efforts on Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and believe that he is the supreme one, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. There is no other way to have peace with God. There is no other way to have forgiveness of your sin. It is only in Christ. That's the only way you can be saved today. He is God. And there, while the world today, and you're going to see it in major denominations, you're going to see it even in the last few weeks, we had an Assemblies of God church change their stance on abortion when the Assemblies of God was quick to push them on out because they believed that maybe we would have been wrong this whole time. Maybe truth has changed. I'm telling you, church, you're about to see some things in the coming months and years As things begin to shift in the world stage, it's going to go back much like it was for this early church where everything is tolerant and everything is relevant and only those who maintain their distinction and their declaration of Jesus Christ will be the ones that Jesus says, now I'm coming for you. Where do we stand on some of these key issues today, whether there are churches weakening their stance on homosexuality or abortion. There are many denying the doctrine of hell today. Uh, There are many coming so close to the world's behaviors and their dress and their uh, attitudes and their actions that there's no longer a distinction in their demonstration of faith. But he says, you need to remember what the word of God says. And he says this, if everyone, therefore, Anyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father. Whoever denies me in that distinction that he is the way before men, if you deny that, he says, I will also deny you before my Father who is in heaven. And he even says this, for people who want a peaceable relationship with the world, he says, do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And he does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he does found his life in this world, you'll lose it. And he who has lost his life yet in this world, for my sake, they will find it. Here is the most peaceable man. In fact, his name is the Prince of Peace who ever lived. He was hated by all. Think about that. The most peaceable, get-along, easygoing guy that ever to walk the earth, that anybody should be able to get behind. People hated him, cursed him, crucified him, called him a leader of demons. And he says, guys, if they did this to me, guess what they're going to do to you? 
He says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And I'm not saying to go out there and start a fight in the world or get on a picket line. But when it comes to a declaration of the distinction of our belief, it must stand fast that Jesus Christ is the only way. It is not your Baptist membership or your Pentecostal membership. It is not whether you speak in tongues or you gave $10,000 in the tithe offering. It is not whether you believe in this way or that way, or if you attend this membership or you're part of that lodge or whatever, you must only rest your life upon the work and the belief that Jesus Christ was good enough to pay for my sins. And there is no, no way any of us were holy enough to get into heaven. I completely rest my whole faith. My whole life stands upon his work on the cross that by grace through faith, I now can become a son or daughter of the most high God. And what good works I do after that moment are simply because I love him. You understand me? It's so easy to come to church and think that helps you get holier or change the way you dress or things that you watch. All those are great things. None of that adds to the holiness. Let me tell you something. I speak in tongues every day. That does not make me holy. There are demonic people that speak in tongues. I've met them. Truth. All of those things don't make you holy. You're holy when you get saved and the Holy Spirit comes in you. That's holy as you're ever going to get. Everything I do now is because I so love him that he died for me. I so love him that he's coming back for me. And he's the only way. He says, remember, number two is this. He says, repent. What am I doing with my life? He says, I love what one author says this. He says, this church did not have a dangerous nor a desirable faith. Sometimes, church, we can get so comfortable in this American Christianity that we become sleepy saints. One author says, do we have friction in our faith? Do you stand out apart from the world? Do we suffer persecution? One, I love the study was how many churches that don't suffer persecution often don't have to pray. We have no need to pray if we're not persecuted. And how many times we so easy want to get along. I want to be accepted by my coworkers. I don't want to have a problem in my family. I don't, I don't want to have all these, this friction. But you know, church, sometimes friction means you're moving. Friction means you're growing. Sometimes you have to have friction in your life. And it's okay so long as it's based on Jesus Christ and your stance for holiness in Him, that He's the way. Again, we're not here to start arguments or to form picket lines but we must look at ourselves and say, do we have fellowship with him or do we walk in darkness like John says? Do we practice the truth or do we walk in the light? And even in John, 1 John chapter 1, uh, verse 8, it says, If we say we have no sin, you will deceive yourself and the truth will not be in you. But if you confess your sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So he says to this church, repent. You either need to continually examine yourself Otherwise, you're going to deceive yourself. Church, you are never too good to repent. Listen to me. You're never too Christian to get down on your knees and come to an altar and ask for the Lord to renew your heart. Every day, Paul said, die daily. It's a continual dependence on him and say, well, I'm a pretty good Christian. I got this now. I don't cuss anymore like I used to. I don't do those things like I used to. I'm not like one of those other people out there. Like, remember that Pharisee and the tax collector? At least like I'm not that guy. I'm not like that guy, God. At least I'm not like him. I'm not comparing anybody but to Jesus. And I need to die daily. Repent. Remember what he said. Repent every day. And lastly is this. Be restored. Where is your strength? 
Where does your strength come from? He says, strengthen the things that remain. That means like they were like this little bitty plant that had almost died. You have a flower maybe that everything has died in the winter time, like our roses out here. It's winter and most of them have died. But there's a little bitty, little bit of green in there. And he says, strengthen the things that remain. How do you do that? For the Apostle John and for Jesus in this moment, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. He's the spirit of truth. He's the one that makes you born again, alive in Christ. He's the one that gives you the living water of the Holy Spirit inside of you. He's the one that can only produce good fruit in your life. And in 1 John, it says, he's the one that helps you determine between the spirit of error and the spirit of God. You have to have the Holy Spirit more in these last days than ever, church. Listen to me. You must be restored every day. God, I need the Holy Spirit. Like that meme says, you need the Holy Spirit to go to Walmart, right? You need the Holy Spirit to know, is this pastor right? Because I may be wrong. I'm not the boss. Is this denomination right? Is this sense of this worship? Is this church going in the right direction? You have to have the Holy Spirit to know that. Otherwise, you will be falling off by doctrines of demons, it says in John, in the last days. These things, says, you must be restored in spirit. Jesus said those who worship him will worship him in what? Spirit and in truth. The Holy Spirit is here to teach you to bring all things to remembrance that Jesus said and to guide you in right relationship with him. Do not rely your Christianity on your works or Pastor Heath or a worship team or denominational preference. Those are all great things. But if you say, God, I need to be strengthened. I need the Holy Spirit. I want to grow in my faith. That is coming to him and remembering what he said, repenting every day and saying, God, Holy Spirit, I can't make myself stronger. Holy Spirit is not going to be the knowledge I have. Holy Spirit is not going to be my doctrinal position. Holy Spirit is not going to be my good works. It's going to be on a living relationship with the breath of God inside of you. That's the only way you and I are going to make it in these last days is to have an intimate relationship with the person of truth. That's Jesus Christ. Amen. Are we distinct in our declaration? Is there any area that I have perhaps compromised what Jesus said for my own opinion? Maybe Jesus' opinion about that movies I watch are different from mine. Maybe Jesus' opinion about my language is different from mine. Maybe Jesus and how I participate in those off-color jokes at my work is different from mine. Maybe there's things in our life, maybe it's doctrinal positions, and we grew up a certain way, and God wants to take you and reveal to you more what holiness really means or grace really means or, or standing firm in purity, those things. We all raised a certain way. Some of us all have opinions. We all have opinions, right? Some of you do, but... It, We'll ask your spouse, and then we'll find the real answer. But you all have opinions, and so it comes back and say, remember, repent, and be restored in the Spirit. I want to stand apart. It comes to the end of this, in this age that we live in, church. Listen, if it comes to the end of this age, you are going, like Elijah, there may be a moment where you feel alone, you feel isolated. The devil has come against you, your coworkers, your family, your friends. People may stand apart from you and say, I don't know this person. I don't, I don't agree with this person. They may accuse you of all types of things you've never done in your life. You may be on the verge of losing your job, your reputation. You may be slandered all across Facebook or whatever. But will you stand and say, I know this is because I stand for Jesus Christ, and I'm not going to deny him. I'm not going to stand apart from him. I'm saying I am going to declare Jesus Christ is the only way. He's the only truth. He's the only life. Amen.
Would you pray with me this morning? Worship team, would you come? Father, Lord, these things are not just theory. Lord, they're not just ancient history, God. They are relevant for today. As we live in this pluralistic society, as we see the days coming near, Lord, where tolerance and diversity have been made excuses for putting out the church out of the marketplace, putting the church out of, uh, Lord, the political arena, putting the church out of places because we don't stand with them on abortion. We may not stand with them on homosexuality. We may not stand with them on relative morality. God, we have to determine, Lord, that I will stand with you. Jesus, help us to teach our children our young people, our young adults, to stand with you. May we help remind them of what your word says, not to interpret it off of media or Facebook or social media or entertainment. God, to stand fast and be full of faith in the Holy Spirit. God, to, Lord, be the church in distinction. Lord, that is full of love and compassion. Lord, that is full of power in the Holy Spirit. Lord, that believes that Jesus Christ is the living one who holds all power and authority. Lord, that we see you clearly in these last days. That, Lord, even though it may feel like the church is put out, but, Lord, we know that you have a purpose and plan, Lord, to see your son high and lifted up. God, you're looking for your spotless bride. Like these believers in Sardis, it says, hold fast. Hold fast. Those who hold fast, I will give them victory. I will give them a place in my Father's house. I will be for them, that there is none beside me. Lord, that we would see you and be, Lord, even as the day draws near, though we know to look to the sky, look to the heavens to know where our help comes from. We know the God who is in order of all things. May we be more confident, Lord, in our faith in these last days. Father, I'm praying for young people.